0: My name is Harley Lewis.
1: I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis.
0: And welcome once more to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse.
1: I love that your awards show voice is basically a John Malkovich impression.
0: Yeah, I guess. It's my head! Another year has passed, and you will see by the title of this episode... That we will be discussing our top 10 films of 2021. This is our individual top 10 films of 2021. This does not mean they're the best. Just Mm -hmm. that they're the ones that struck us.
1: Yes. You should be able to look at these lists and get a pretty good idea of our taste in movies. These are the ones that spoke to us the most.
0: And it's been quite a complicated process this year. A lot of stuff has come out in comparison to the drought we had last year.
1: Yeah, I saw 429 films in 2021, 92 of them in (laughs) theatres. And once you actually started counting actually 2021 films, including the ones that came out at the beginning of the year, but basically I had 98 films eligible Mm. for this list.
0: So that's a busy, busy year. But we will get into the awards show part of our episode later. First, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off?
1: Okay, I had a bad week. (laughs) Just way too many movies on it that did not hit the mark, that were really kind of dumb and goofy, or just didn't work in some way or another. And I'm starting out with the worst of them. It's kind of a, a helpful bookend, because there is going to be a version of this movie, I'm sure, on all of our top tens. I'm talking about a 2006 adaptation of Macbeth. Oh, It is a crime drama, this time, directed by Geoffrey Wright, who directed Romper Stomper, and it is based on the William Shakespeare play, but it is an Australian movie that takes it from the Scottish kingdoms.
2: The one with the goth girls in the cemetery. Sydney Macbeth.
1: Well, Melbourne Macbeth. Instead of a Scottish kingdom, it's a Melbourne gang family.
3: Mm.
0: Well, it feels like it just really looked at the success of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and decided... No.
1: Don't you dare. You wash your mouth out with soap.
0: The gangland uh, of warring family shit.
1: Uh sure. If you ever wanted to see Sam Worthington do Shakespeare, then this is the movie for you. For verily, it is he who plays Macbeth. He is prophesied to be king, here meaning leader of this Melbourne gangland crime family thing. He's convinced by his wife, played by Victoria Hill, to kill the current leader of the gang, Duncan, who is played by Gary Sweet. And uh, he goes mad from guilt as the underlings beneath him start to rise up against him. This is done in Shakespeare in English. It has got, you know, that classic dialogue. They don't try and update it, 10 Things I Hate About You style. But look, I don't want to be snobby here, but this is Shakespeare as presented by the local trailer park. It's really mishandled. It's got such a trashy tone. It's like a teenage boy wrote it. Wouldn't it be cool if Lady Macbeth was a coke fiend? Wouldn't it be cool if there were tons of gunfights and lots of stage blood? Wouldn't it be cool if the witches were hot teenagers in schoolgirl outfits who have a foursome with Macbeth with two minutes of full frontal nudity? I mean, be careful or you might cut yourself on all that edge. Hmm. Gary Sweet is the only actor who actually works here. Everyone else is not very good at the best of times. You get them to recite Shakespearean in English in iambic pentameter and they're like deer in the headlights. But it fumbles every important moment of the play. It is frequently ridiculous and melodramatic in its staging. And the update that they made to the present day, to the Melbourne ganglands, just doesn't fit smoothly. It's ripped a whole bunch of scenes out, shifted stuff around, shifted dialog to different scenes. They've abridged things massively because plenty of it just doesn't make sense in the setting. And even with all of the changes, a lot of it still doesn't make sense. Worthington's Macbeth is particularly disastrous. It is so shallow. I've never seen a more shallow version of Macbeth. He just prances around the place wearing florid shirts, doing a Jack Sparrow routine. It's really dodgy and it looks pretty dodgy too it's quite graceless a lot of the framing is wobbly like they couldn't be bothered to get a mount for the camera Hmm. even in scenes that are clearly meant to be stationary it's underlit it really would have just been better as a 10 things i hate about you sort of adaptation if they just took the general structure of the story but made changes here and there used modern language anyways i next saw stormbreaker it is a young adult spy movie directed by Jeffrey Sachs. It's based on the Anthony Horowitz novel of the same name, and it is about a a teen British orphan play, named Alex Ryder. He's played by Alex Pettifer. And uh, his uncle Ian, played by Ewan McGregor, dies suddenly. And he learns in the aftermath of that that his uncle was a spy, and he is recruited by MI6 to finish the job because he is the only option. Basically, there is this insane billionaire named Darius Sale He's played by Mickey Rourke. He's going to donate a whole bunch of his new computers to every school in Britain at the end of the week. And they're suspicious of him. The only way they can get someone in in time to investigate is to basically rig a computer magazine contest for Alex to have a a tour of his facility. So that's the big justification for why MI6 would send a 14-year-old on a mission. (laughs) I was a big fan of the novel as a kid. End of the movie as well have you guys read or seen this
0: i uh, no, stormbreaker was kind of something that yeah we never really got <laughs> into when it came to books i was more like goosebumps hatchet was really good but
2: i never really got around to stormbreaker but no we hadn't seen this one apparently jimmy carr's in it
1: oh yeah very very briefly it largely holds up it's very fun very breezy it just moves straight past the implausibility of the child soldier thing and asks you not to think about it <laughs> too hard. But all of the Junior James Bond stuff works really well. It's very comic booky. it's very light-footed, but it's got this sort of very mild nasty streak that is enough to, like, get kids' attention, you know? It's like, oh, they're not talking down to me, they're willing to, like, have a guy get killed, you know? Have a little bit of mean. I expect you to die, Mr. Bond, kind of moment every now and again. The script can be very corny, though. It is constantly searching for the next awesome quotable line and in the process becomes quite cheesy. And it's much shorter than I remembered. It's actually 90 minutes long. And I did wonder, actually, whether... It might have been longer. I can't find any evidence for that, but it does kind of seem like, wow, you could have had like an extra 20 minutes in there to let it breathe a bit more. And I, I do wonder if there was maybe some sort of edict because this was a Weinstein Company
3: mm. production
1: and they were quite infamous for forcing filmmakers to cut a bunch of stuff that didn't need to be cut because they thought that the shorter it was, that meant it was better or that the pace was better. But they add an extra finale that wasn't in the book that is really excellent. I like the way that it's done. It's a much larger finale, just to fit the movie blockbuster thing. Pettifer is a likable lead, and it has a great supporting cast. I mean, I mentioned McGregor, I mentioned Rourke, but you've also got Andy Serkis, Robbie Coltrane, Stephen Fry, Alicia Silverstone, Damien Lewis. It is a delightfully weird performance by Bill Nye as the head of MI6. And I remember it's the first time I noticed him in anything. I mean, I had seen Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Chest yeah. before, but he was under all that digital makeup, and so I didn't. You know, yeah. noticed the actor in that sense But this was the first time I noticed him It's just such a bizarre performance He's like this guy who's who just hates dealing with people Who's like the head of MI6 Because he's fantastic from a strategy and tactics perspective But, like, the worst part of his job Is when he has to interact with people hmm. Like, he's talking to his assistant When they're making arrangements to extract Alex And he's like, maybe you can go and take him to get an ice cream <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's always fun to see Bill Nye and things because he always has the most delightful line reads.
1: Yeah. Really interesting because he's, he's sort of playing it as like a character who has designed his whole life so that he never has to interact with children, but now has to. Hmm. It sort of it seems to be the edict he was working under. But Sax shoots the movie very well. It's got some interesting frame choices. It's got some very kooky close-ups where it will get in really close to a character's face, but the lens also kind of kind of makes the nose loom out at you and makes the rest of the face sort of curve back in on itself. It's got a very strange look sometimes, but they they use that to make some really interesting kooky close-ups on the on the weirder characters. Like, Bill Nye gets a lot of those. Hmm. But it did terribly at the box office. Like, it yeah. did awfully. And that whole franchise... I mean, it's one of those, you know, post-Harry Potter attempts at a big young adult yeah. franchise. It, yeah, yeah. But like Spiderwick Chronicles and Percy Jackson and The Golden Compass, it has been resurrected as a TV show.
2: Amazon Prime has done it.
1: Yes, an Amazon Prime television show, which doesn't adapt the same book. They didn't go back to the same book. They're adapting a different book each season, but the two books they've done so far are, are different books in the series.
2: Basically, Kid Jack Reacher.
1: Yeah. I next watched All the King's Men. It is a political drama directed by Stephen Zalian. It's based on the Robert Penn Warren novel of the same name, and it was previously adapted, that book, as the best picture-winning 1949 movie by Robert Rosson. It's set in 1930s Louisiana, and it follows the rise of a populist politician named Willie Stark, played by Sean Penn, through the eyes of his right-hand man, Jack Burden, played by Jude Law. This is an ambitious but garbled mess. It would be a limited series if it were made today. It's got a very novelistic story, a lot of threads, a lot of context and information given that just doesn't really suit the two-hour film. It's a story about a progressive firebrand who ends up ruling as an autocrat. And it's based on a real-life guy called Huey Long, who is kind of difficult to nail down politically. As He's probably left-wing, but people sort of... It's long been a point of contention as to what political ideology he belonged to. Basically, he was the Willy Long political ideology, but he ruled as a demagogue and an autocrat in real life. The real life guy is way more complicated than the version of him on film here, Stark. And that's a problem because they're not really willing to get as into the weeds as they need to. It had me wonder if Sean Penn was unwilling to get the character dirty in the way that he needed to. Because there are things in the character that, you know, most people would support. You know, he campaigns against corruption. He's an advocate for the poor. But once he actually gets into power, he starts using all of those same methods that he lambasted his opponents for using. And it just sort of an ends justify the means things. Well, if I'm going to change things, I need to work in the system that is currently in place, you know, but they never go really far enough to explore that moral ambiguity the focus on jack as the main character here is really told through his eyes that's correct but it leaves stark as sort of a shallow figure as sort of a supporting piece of iconography almost rather than a character and you never really know what anyone's thinking i mean it's very difficult to get inside any of these characters heads i think that's a problem and it's it's zipping through so much time and information as well that it just seems on fast forward the whole way through there's a lot of supporting characters chucked about with no payoff There are some extremely slippery accents here, strong accents and not totally successful accents, and it can be really hard to understand because you've got a lot of non-Southern actors doing their best Southern accent, and often it doesn't work or it gets very difficult to understand. Sean Penn in particular is almost incomprehensible at times. I actually want to pull up just a bit from the trailer here so that you can... Hear what he sounds like.
3: Listen to him. Listen
2: here. If you don't vote, you don't matter. And then you're just as ignorant as them in the city say you are. Why they steal every last nickel out your pocket saying thank you, please. Jack, see who's this fella thinks of Jesus Christ, come down off the cross. It's up to you. To nail up any bastard that's between you and the roads and the bridges and the schools and the food you need. You give me the hammer
3: and I'll do it. Nail him up! Nail him up! Nail, him up! nail him up! Yeah,
1: that's a lot. He kind of sounds like he's auditioning for the lead singer of The Disturbed. Nail him up! Nail him up!
0: <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> With accent work, you have to be really particular not to overblow it. Yeah. Because people who have the accents in real life have more variety in their delivery. That's just how accents and vocal tones work. And I think a lot of actors can tend to, well, a lot of actors who don't focus a lot on accent and vocal work tend to overdo it so they can sound like it. When you don't have to push that hard, just relax, open up your airways. Perfect accent work comes from folks like Andrew Garfield.
1: Meryl Streep.
0: Meryl Streep. They pay attention to relaxing those vocal cords. When you strain it, that's when it sounds silly.
1: Mm. It has an extraordinary cast, though, but they all kind of underwhelm. I mean, you've got Sean Penn and Jude Law, but you've also got Kate Winslet, Anthony Hopkins, James Gandolfini, Patricia Clarkson, Mark Ruffalo. I mean, it's a cast with seven Oscar nominees in it, three of them winners. They should be more impressive than they are. But I next watched Feast... It is a monster horror comedy directed by John Gulager, and it is about people at a roadside bar who fight off horrific creatures that attack the bar. Have you heard of a show on HBO called Project Greenlight?
0: Oh I've heard the name around.
1: It's basically a reality TV show where people compete in the first few episodes to get a script greenlit and have them direct a the movie and then it follows the process of directing a movie and then the production company that produced the show also put out the, the movies in theaters. And this is one of those. This was the winner of the third season. It's a show that was produced and co-hosted by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And they're actually resurrecting it for HBO Max soon. But this is one of those. It's a dead simple premise. It writes itself. I'd say that it's got an element of grand guignol to it, but it's too intellectual a term for what's going on here. It really revels in bodily fluid. It is the slimiest movie I've seen in a long, long time has some very crass comedic elements, a lot of gross-out stuff. It works okay, but anything that it tries at a higher level than that tends to fail. I mean, it does this sort of freeze-frame thing as it introduces all the characters. This is the name of the character. This is a fun fact about the character. This is the expected life expectancy of this character in a horror movie. And, you know, that's funny, like, the first two or three times, but... Once you go through the whole, like, 15-person cast, that it starts to wear out its welcome really quickly when you're doing that all in five minutes. Just, it does that a little too much. It can be too smug in its attempt to surprise and subvert. It always goes for the most appalling option, and so it ceases to shock, because it becomes predictable by being so strenuously unpredictable. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I can understand that. It sort of horseshoes back around to being predictable.
1: Yeah. And just the very edgy attitude that it's got becomes increasingly exhausting.
0: So, in, in a sense, it is both try-hard and lazy.
1: Yes. It's grindhouse through and through, though. It's got very cool practical effects. It's not aspiring to much beyond that, and the production values match that lack of aspiration outside of the practical effects, but so does the cast as well. But it's it's effective. It works. Good acting would go against the the aesthetic. So you've got, you've got a bunch of b-movie actors here you do have a guy named judah friedlander who i have disliked in everything i've ever seen him in but that's more my own personal distaste of judah friedlander than the character he plays i suppose but you also get jason muse in a supporting role the silent bob actor and the joke of course is that he's playing himself as a guy at this roadside bar and then of course he gets immediately killed but I next watched Feast 2, Sloppy Seconds. It is again directed by Gulager, and it is the first of 2 director video movies that were made back-to-back with each other. Obviously, it must have done well on home video because they went in this direction. It didn't get a very high gross in theatres, so it must have done well on a home video. But it's set the next day, and a gang of the survivors from the first movie, along with some newbies, try to stay alive as the creatures move on from the bar and take over a neighbouring small town. It's learned all the wrong lessons from the first movie. It's more crass. It's more revolting. It now has less point. The ethos that it's operating under is really, what's the most fucked up thing that we could do here at any given time? Mm. And there is exactly one moment when it works. But it's barely a story. It's just a gang of unlikable people getting covered in goop and occasionally killed. It's compelling in a base kind of way. I mean, you kind of... Want to see what happens next, but it's, it's, look, it's not boring. I'll give it that. But it shows its budget even more than the first one. The creatures are less cool. You never get an explanation as to what the creatures are. That might be a good thing considering the intelligence with which the rest of the movie is written. But it has no ending. Like I said, these were two films filmed back to back. This is a Matrix Reloaded Revolution style thing. It's just a big cliffhanger at the end. A more Apt comparison would probably be a two-part episode of a sci-fi channel TV show, <laughs> but that's really more the level that this is operating at. But I would believe it if you told me that this was just one long script that they wrote and then arbitrarily cut at the middle. It's just yeah. gross and witless. And, of course, it led me to finish up with Feast 3, The Happy Finish, directed once more by Gulager, and the same group is still trying to get out of the same town. Wait, we get some-
2: so... The happy finish is the actual subtitle for the movie? Yes,
1: yes. That's a bit presumptuous. They, they suddenly make an indication here that it's apocalyptic, that this, apparently these creatures have turned up everywhere, which is really weird because we don't see that. It just emphasises how little explanation we've got for any of these things. But the well has totally run dry here. It's just the same tricks over and over again. It's not shocking anymore. It's just rote. It's barely feature length, barely over 80 minutes, and the first five minutes are just the last five minutes of two as like a recap. Jesus. And yet, even though it's that short, it still drags and bores. Any sense of motive or narrative is gone. It's just doing random shit and calling it a story. It has an incomprehensible finale packed with flashing lights and freeze frame images, terribly, terribly directed, It does do a couple of things that keep it from being a total loss. There is a very ghoulish thing where an explosion happens and a character gets impaled through the head with a piece of rebar, but Uh. it doesn't kill them. So they're just running around with this piece of rebar through their head with progressively decreasing mental faculties as the movie goes on. I'll give it that.
2: See, in a better movie, that could be really funny.
1: Yeah. And the final moments of the movie are ballsy. I will give them that. If these movies had any respect for narrative character and audience, then the ending they've come up with here would be terrible. But as it is, it's kind of just a fitting final middle finger. It's like being the victim of like a massive prank. You're pissed off, but you've got to kind of admire the effort to which they've gone to, you know? Lastly this week, I saw Abominable. It is another monster movie. It is directed by Ryan Schifrin. And it follows a recent widower named Preston, played by Matt McCoy. He has experienced a violent trauma. He and his wife were in a climbing accident that killed her and has left him a paraplegic. And he's been in a mental health treatment facility for six months. And he returns to his home in the woods with his nurse, Otis, played by Christian Tinsley, who I learned from looking this movie up after the fact is vin diesel's personal makeup artist he's like credited on a bunch of fast and furious movies because vin diesel keeps bringing him in to apply his makeup specifically once preston is back at his you know isolated mountain home in the woods the neighboring house has been rented out by some young woman on a weekend away and while he's just sitting around kind of bored he sees a yeti picking off the young women as they go outside for various reasons one by one. And he tries to warn people, but the phone lines are down and no one believes him. This is Rear Window with a Bigfoot. Nice. It fits really, really closely, like the guy in the wheelchair and everything. It's really nothing more than that. But it doesn't have to be, because Rear Window with a Bigfoot (laughs) is a damn good premise.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If you narrow it down to Rear Window X a thing, Mm. that's excellent. Because you've got stuff like Fright Night, Disturbia.
0: On the topic of Rear Window, actually, this might seem irrelevant, but just hear me out. The company that creates the Funko Pops, the Funko brand, have created a Rear Window board game.
1: Yeah, I saw that this morning. That's a weird pull.
0: I think it sounds like a great idea. I love the dichotomy of the vulnerable person being in safety, but able to see everyone else in danger. Yeah, That's just a... Really tense sort of setup.
2: It's also this interesting thing because in the in the original Rear Window, Jimmy Stewart was put in the wheelchair because he was taking photos of like a rally car race and a car slammed into him. So it's interesting that these sort of like extreme sports things are carried over to. Hmm. this movie
1: oh the whole setup makes for a really clever b-movie and it has restraint there is real craft to what they've done here with this small budget the director achieves legitimate tension it's a very low budget independent movie it had very few resources to work with but shifrin has marshaled them all quite well mccoy as the main character is very good they've blown a, a bunch of the money. To hire Jeffrey Coombs, D. Wallace, and Lance Henriksen to come in for these tiny little supporting roles.
2: <laughs> Jeffrey Combs is worth the money. Yeah. Do I need to see this?
1: You might. I mean, there's just a scene with Jeffrey Combs and Lance Henriksen as hunters in the woods getting picked off by the Yeti. It's sort of totally detached from the rest of the narrative, but it's just an excuse to put them on the box.
0: Brilliant. Fair enough.
1: The Bigfoot though is woefully goofy. Thankfully, you don't see it a bunch until the third act. It's doing the Jaws thing. Mm. And by that point, goodwill sustains it when you finally do get the full-body shots. But the tension is gone, because this thing looks like one of the full-body Muppets. Yes! (laughs) Giant Muppets in a suit. I'm I'm just a person in a suit. I'm going to text you a photo of this, this Yeti.
2: I was hoping you would say that. Oh... Oh, gorgeous. I don't even care. I need to see this. That's excellent. Oh, how does his mouth even work with those teeth?
1: His jaw dislocates.
2: That's ah, well, awesome. there you go.
1: It looks a bit cheap as well.
2: Well, they spent the money on Combs, you know? Yeah,
1: I think Henriksen. I think <laughs> Henriksen's a harder get than Jeffrey Combs. Sure, sure. The colour timing is just a bit off sometimes, and there's some very obvious day-for-night shots, but mm. it has enough genuine skill to disguise all of its shortcomings as charm. It's very difficult to get a hold of in Australia. I bought an inexplicably carefully done special edition Blu-ray of it that included various little tweaks and things because they had lost the original preparations that they'd done. They had to go in and re-edit the whole thing and redo some of the little bits of effects work, recolor time it. But it is available on a streaming service called Plex. Oh, if you are oh, interested Jesus. in seeing it in Australia, I th- believe... That is the only way to see it. I don't think it is available for rental anywhere. Let me just double check on the app that I use here. Yes, Plex is the only way you can see it in Australia, unless you want to import a Blu-ray like I did.
2: You know what? That picture of the Yeti actually just looks like a Goosebumps cover. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's got the colour. It's got the proportions.
0: That is excellent.
1: Yeah, but that's, uh, that's me done for the week. What about you guys, what have you been watching?
0: We started and completed a series this week, and also started another, but didn't quite have the time to finish it. The first series we watched is called Joe vs. Carol. This is, of course, one of the first dramatizations of the whole Tiger King debacle. Carol Baskin, played by Kate McKinnon, a big cat rescuer, sets out to end roadside zoo operator Joe Exotic's animal shows and club breeding businesses. He is played by John Cameron Mitchell, inciting a bitter 10-year feud that threatens both of their livelihoods and eventually their lives. I enjoyed this quite a lot. Mm. Now, I didn't go into the series wanting to understand or gain a different perspective on the events, because I feel like a lot of that was covered in a lot of detail in Tiger King, the series, which I have to say was an incredibly important series to me at the start of the pandemic, witnessing other madness outside of what was actually going on at the time.
1: Put things into perspective for it you.
0: really put things into perspective. The reason I was so interested in this one and further adaptations of the story as they get made, because there will be other adaptations after than this, is how they translate yeah. certain people and events into this new format, which is dramatization.
1: Yeah, scripted miniseries. Yeah. So I saw the trailers for this and I thought it looked a little bit, I don't know, dinky, but... You're telling me it, it worked out okay?
0: I think so. I found it fairly even-handed as well, which is really nice. Both Carol Baskin and Joe Exotic are very complicated figures. Neither of them good. I don't like either of them because they both rubbed me the wrong way as people. But they have both been through a lot.
2: They're both damaged people who have been through trauma piled on to trauma, piled onto trauma, and it has caused them to be the way that they are. And this series goes into that. We get a lot of flashbacks to their pasts and both Mitchell and McKinnon play the characters with equal amounts of pathos and also humor because this is an inherently ridiculous concept. I remember first hearing about Joe Exotic years back and... It just seemed like this nebulous thing that it's like, of course this is happening in America. Of course it is. (laughs) But seeing the backstories and seeing what these people went through and seeing them at sort of their darkest moments, obviously dramatized, gives a lot of good context.
0: Yeah, Mitchell and McKinnon are fantastic. While they are both physically smaller in terms of height and a little bit thinner in terms of their faces than the real people they're playing, what they truly nail is delivery and presence. Mm. Particularly John Cameron Mitchell, it's transformative.
1: Can I ask, does it dramatize that event you told me about where the friends of Joe Exotic went to look for a a pardon but turned up on January the 6th, 2021?
0: It ends before that.
1: Ah, that's... Sadly. See, that's a missed opportunity. Wouldn't it be an incredible thing if the Joe Exotic miniseries was our first dramatisation of the January 6th insurrection?
0: It'd be fitting.
1: Wouldn't it, though? Wouldn't it make so much sense thematically? (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, it would have been really cool. I would have liked that, but they didn't do that, unfortunately. They ended
2: at a good place, I reckon. Yeah. And, I mean, the voice that John Cameron Mitchell puts on is spooky.
0: Yeah, he is so close. It looks like he's watched a lot of footage of Joe Exotic just to get the voice right, the physical performance as well. Kate McKinnon's really good as well in terms of voice and presence, but a lot of the time, less wholly transformative than what John Cameron Mitchell is doing. A lot of the other cast's are really good here. Everyone does a really good job. They do adapt some of the more upsetting and shocking moments from the Tiger King series. And the way that they're handled, I think, is quite fairly.
2: It's deft. When we get to specific moments, like everything with Travis Maldonado, everything with Saf losing his arm, everything to do with Joe's first husband, everything to do with Carol Baskin leaving an abusive home...
0: It treats serious stuff with serious weight. But it does also realize that it's central two figures, Joe and Carol are eccentrics they are incredibly bizarre people and i just really really liked it but i do have to say as someone who has lived in the area in which it was shooting southeast queensland does not look anything like either oklahoma or florida i've been to some of the places where they shot some of this stuff and you could always tell
2: i'm looking at paper bark trees and i'm like i don't think you can find those in tampa
0: Mm. (laughs) but that's just me One of the roughest parts of it, however, is the use of special effects on some of the animals, just by necessity. Yeah, because
2: you know, you've got tigers, you've got monkeys, you've got creatures that you can't really...
0: But they're decent enough. It's a TV budget, so you've got to be a little more relaxed about that kind of thing. Yeah, I just had a really good time with this. It's not for everyone, but it's a very good companion piece to tiger king
2: yeah i reckon if you enjoyed tiger king you would enjoy this i think you would enjoy this more
0: the documentary series had a lot to get through and could be very dry at times
1: it's actually based on the uh, wondering non-fiction podcast yes like that was out before yeah. Tiger King yeah. the documentary came out that was the original thing it just didn't catch on in the way that
2: i think they did miss one opportunity they didn't get John Cameron Mitchell to sing any of Joe's songs.
0: Yes, that would have been so funny. Oh, well, though, yeah. no. I just had a really good time with it. It makes a lot more sense in terms of its pace when you know the story already. Anyone going in blind, I'd say, hold off until you've seen *Other oh, Tiger Can will listen to that podcast. It has a brisk, brisk pace.
2: If this was fiction, you'd think that the writers were insane.
0: Yeah, you can find that in Australia on Stand.
2: We also watched a new series from Taika Waititi and Reese Darby called Our Flag Means Death. The year is 1717, and wealthy landowner Steed Bonnet has had a midlife crisis. He decides to blow up his cushy life to become the Gentleman Pirate. It doesn't
1: go well. That guy, Steed, yeah, Steed Bonnet's in Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Steed Bonnet, an actual man who was a wealthy landowner who decided that he wanted to spend his life being a pirate, eventually coming into contact and becoming one of the admirals for Blackbeard's fleet.
0: <laughs> like It's such a fascinating story because he's like all the other pirates' idiot kid brother.
2: Yeah, this is a great series. We've got Rhys Darby playing Steed Bonnet, we've got Joel Fry as one of the members of, the, of his crew. We've also got Samson Ko, Nathan Foad, Matthew Mayer, Ewan Bremer, and Vico Ortiz, all as members of his crew, and as well as Kristen Nan as another one, and Samba Shoot as another. But I think where this show really goes in an interesting direction is with Blackbeard, played by Taika Waititi, and his right-hand man, Israel Hands, played by Con O'Neill. Blackbeard has gotten to the point in his career where he doesn't even have to try. People see his flag and they give up. There's no danger.
0: The Queen Anne's Revenge was, like, legendary.
2: So people would just give up. So he is wanting a change himself. He's having a midlife crisis. And he's taking Steed Bonnet under his wing. This is hilarious. You've got a lot of incredibly talented comedic performers here, but I have to give massive props to Ewan Bremmer. For this, his character of Buttons, the second in command, like the quartermaster of Steed's ship, The Revenge, is hilarious. He gets some of the best lines.
0: He has this flat deadpan delivery. Yeah. That just really works, because he's really the only one going full pirate. Yeah. In terms of accent as well. So he really stands out.
2: Absolutely. Him and Con O'Neill are going for being in a proper pirate thing where mm. you've got Taika Watiti's black beard. He's dressed like 1700s Mad Max.
0: Like, literally. He's got, like, the shoulder pad and the leg brace and everything.
2: It's fantastic. The comedic performances are great. Reese Starby as Steed Bonnet is inspiring. Inspired casting. Because he brings across this sense of just foppishness and in over his head. But you get a lot of really great, more serious moments with him that shows Darby's range. Mm. This is very fun. It's light. It's breezy. But it is sort of talking about how people can get in over their heads when they try to enter these far more masculine and far more serious kinds of professions, such as piracy, but also how doing this same thing over and over again can wear on a person's soul to the point where they need to just have a sea change. This is a fantastic series. Uh, I really am excited to finish it later today. and
0: You can find it on Binge in Australia as opposed to many episodes, we don't have a trailer to show you. So now we're going to take a bit of a break, and then we'll be back with our best of 2021.
3: Have you ever had a case of the Mondays, where your pathetic human meat hands fumble with the most basic of tasks like holding keys or pouring milk? Do you often appear like you're some sort of incompetent babbling baby when you are a full-grown adult? Do you struggle with trying to have your stepson respect you? Well, I through thought have the perfect solution. With my patented six-step program machine learning, you can become the best version of your unimportant self without ever having to leave your enclosure. For only forty-nine point nine nine, you get a package that includes a book on tape copy of my best-selling book. You can handle the truth but, how to achieve your own personal singularity as well as a word of the day calendar and fountain pen. Enter code Harley lies at checkout for a special bonus gift, a set of gorgeous stainless steel state knives that will make you the envy of all of your pen. I've been now back to your regularly scheduled podcast
1: all right we're back we're here we're ready to do our top 10 lists of our favorite movies of 2021 now we emphasize that this is not necessarily mean the best movies of 2021 there are movies on here that are actually very high up, that I'm sure none of us would put on a list of the best movies of 2021 in any sort of objective sense. But these are the movies that spoke to us the most. These are the movies that we enjoyed the most, that stuck with us the most. And the general idea that we try to follow with these is that if you were to look at these lists, you should get a pretty good idea of what our taste in film is and the kind of things that speak to us. So uh, the way that we're going to do this is that we're going to rotate through the three of us and start at 10, and we're each going to give our 10s, and then we're going to go on to 9s, 8s, and so forth. However, if we if we say a movie that then turns up higher on someone else's list, we're going to table the discussion of that until then, until it turns up higher. The way we're going to do this also is we're just going to go, I think, in alphabetical Order so Harley, Jean, Lawson. Yep. So, uh, why don't we get this show on the road? Why don't you start us off, Harley? What is your number 10 favorite film of 2021?
0: Uh, also, before I start with that, this is going to be a spoiler filled discussion.
1: Yes, that's a good point. This is going to be a spoiler filled discussion, but we have taken the um, initiative of figuring out timestamps so if you look in the episode description this week you will see a list of our top tens and you will also see the timestamps for which we talk about those movies so if there's a movie that you don't want to hear spoilers for yet you will be able to go and see at what time our discussion on that movie ends all right so you want to start us off harley
0: yeah absolutely so to start off is my number 10 this was a movie that fought for its position against my honorable mentions, but eventually I had to come up with a victor. And the winner was The King's Man. We spoke about that a couple of weeks back, actually, uh, and this is the prequel to the Kingsman series. It's set in World War One. I. I just had a really great time with this one. Mm. Not only did it take itself more seriously than the other Kingsman movies, who I think spun a little too hard into comedy... This one has a lot of heart. It takes itself seriously, but it's also funnier parts. Uh, I give a lot of props to the whole trenches sequence.
1: Mm. That is the like the defining part of the movie, isn't it? The sudden death of oh, of yeah. Rayfanta's son.
0: Yeah, I did not see that coming.
3: Mm.
2: Brutal.
0: It's not often when a movie can actually surprise me like that,
2: and it's such a sad death as well because it's he has just succeeded, you know.
1: Yeah, But he's just come out of that conversation in the um, the bombing hollow, as well, with the guy who is like, oh, you know, my dad was right, war is terrible, you know, I need to get out of here, you know, I need to see my family again.
0: And that guy didn't even make it either.
2: Yeah. I do like how that guy turns to him and is like, hey son, what are you doing here? Like, super calm, he's just like, yeah, <laughs> well, you don't have to tell me twice,
1: war sucks. I used to have legs.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also really adored the quiet knife fight. Yes.
1: Yes. Mm.
0: That's such a great action sequence, because they have to stay silent and not alert the gunners on either trench, because if either trench hears them, they're just screwed. I think it are great performances, great finds, it's great. Risa Farns doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, Which is, for me, peak...
2: I think the only reason why it's not on my list is because they didn't follow through with something they were planning. During the fight scene with Rasputin, they were going to have an orchestral version of Boney Adams' Rasputin playing, you know, raw, raw, Rasputin, love of the Russian Queen. They were going to have an orchestral version of that as the music for that. And that's the reason. The fact that they don't is the only reason it's not on my list.
1: You can hold a grudge, can't you, Sean?
2: Oh, yeah. that would have been <laughs> That's a, excellent. Let down, but... it was a
1: very, very small thing that they did to slight you, but...
2: And also, there were just some... There were some great movies this year, you know? Hmm.
0: Yeah, this is my favourite of the franchise. I love a good World War One movie, especially one that has such thrilling action.
2: Hmm. So my number 10 is a movie that I wasn't expecting to absolutely adore, but I ended up really loving it. It's Cruella. I really, really enjoyed this. It doesn't feel like a Disney movie. It feels far sort of grimmer, more punkish, and it has a great sense of style. The costumes are incredible. The performance from Emma Stone and the performance from Emma Thompson, they are Chewing the scenery, fighting each other for the spotlight, and it's incredible. It's Devil Wears Prada on acid. It is great. It is sort of mean-spirited and nasty, and I can see Cruella becoming the cruel villain that she was always meant to become, because there are glimpses of her in this movie. And I wouldn't be surprised that she would turn 101 Dalmatians into a fur coat. It's punk. It has a great song from Florence and the Machine with some absolutely boss-ass lyrics. I loved it. It should win for
1: costumes. I can't imagine anything else will. Yeah,
2: exactly. And has a great Nicholas Brightel score that is criminal and also, weird to use the word, but sexy it's got that sort of slinky kind of energy to it it's so fantastic and joel fry is incredible here as well
1: all right then my number 10 is a nu- is a movie that like harley i was sort of fighting tooth and nail to see what would edge in and what wouldn't but it ultimately the winner here my number 10 is raya and the last dragon it is a pretty phenomenal piece of filmmaking. It's that classic fantasy quest movie for kids. You know, it's, it, I said it when I talked about it on the what we've been watching when I saw it initially, that it, it sort of gives me Deltora Quest vibes. It's got that very sort of classic quest structure, an incredibly well designed fantasy world that it takes place in. It looks good. It's got some of the, best-looking animation I've ever seen. It's just a a gorgeous piece of art to look at. And it has real emotion and real meaning as well, meaning that we could all, frankly, use at at this point in time, stuff about getting along. I mean, as rote as that is, I mean, the whole idea of, you know, peace being a thing we should strive for even if it looks impossible, Mm. uh, that is something that I feel like in this current era of divisive political rhetoric and and indeed international war. It's something that we should all be thinking about a little bit more. But it has a fantastic voice cast. It has some extraordinary set pieces, some great atmosphere. It really is a new addition to the canon of fantastic non-musical Disney films. It really is right up there in that for me.
0: My number nine is Predictable. Uh, it was a movie I had been, what, waiting years for. It is, of course, Zack Snyder's Justice League.
1: Yes, we did have this conversation off mic, and we all decided that, yes, it, it does count because of... It is fundamentally a different movie oh, absolutely. to oh, yeah. the 2017 theatrical release. It is It's sort of like the the, the two Exorcist prequel things.
0: Yeah, yeah uh, Exorcist, The Beginning, and The Minion.
1: Sure, technically they feature some of the same footage... But, fundamentally, they are different.
0: And, you know, there is so much different here. What I like about this one is that it's big, it's epic, it's mythical. It is a weirdly way more upbeat movie <laughs> it's than... more optimistic, yeah. ...the 2017 version. The team gets along better in this one. There's less hostility between the members. Bruce is
2: hopeful and doesn't want to die.
0: Yeah, Bruce actually cares about what happens to him and others... I waited a long time to see this one. And while it is four hours long, it's it could be a slog. I, what I like about it the most is it's everything in the kitchen sink. Yeah, It's got stuff we wouldn't have seen if Snyder didn't have to leave the movie the first time. And I just really, really like it.
1: When you do your rewatches of the DCEU, will you slot it in instead of the theatrical cut? Does it sort of work cleanly there? Or?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It yeah. works surprisingly cleanly. Basically, uh, Amber Heard is using a British accent, but that's really about it. Anything else you can just logic out. The Atlanteans use this sort of like dolphin-esque speech while underwater, which keeps us us out of removed from some of it.
1: Yeah, that was in the theatrical part as well, though, wasn't it?
0: A little bit, yeah. but...
1: Because I remember thinking that was absolutely nonsense when I saw it the first time.
0: I think you could just argue that They're speaking in a code. Anyway, I just really, really dug this. And really good score as well. I liked The Return of Superman, all of that stuff. It got me in the emotions, you know?
2: So my number nine is a movie, again, that I've been waiting for for a while. I'm a massive fan of this person's filmography. It is The French Dispatch.
0: Uh, that comes a little later. Really? Okay. For me.
1: Well then my number 9 is a movie that I'm I think you guys haven't seen it's gunpowder milkshake. This is a fantastic stylistic action film. It's got this bubblegum pop tone to it that is just extraordinary. It's got crime stuff, it's got action stuff, it's kind of a western at the same in the same way. It's got a an extremely stylized proxy for the the weird sisters from Macbeth in it <laughs> as well as sort of these weapons dealers that these assassins go to. It's just got so much personality, and it's so unique. I I remember thinking, I mean, like, it just has the feeling of one of those cult hit comic books, you know? Mm-hmm. One of those yeah. ones that never really got mainstream attention, but were, like, beloved by the people who read them.
0: Yeah, like some sort of image yeah. or... That kind of comic,
1: exactly. And I, I walked out of that movie thinking, well, surely that was like based on a comic, right? But no, it's it's an original mm. conception, and it's it's brilliantly done. It's brilliantly designed. It has that sort of Wizard of Oz look, where you can tell that things are a set, but that's you know what makes it look so good. And uh, it's just got some really interesting bits of humor, some absolutely fantastic fight sequences, some of the most creative fight sequences I've seen in a long time. Karen Gillan's character has her arms anesthetized at one point, but then gets a- attacked. So uh, she has a knife duct taped to one hand and a gun duct taped to the other and literally just spins around using momentum to flop her arms around so that she can slice people's throats. Like, That's it's really a-, a great little sleeper hit. It's one of those ones that should have gotten more attention than it did. Uh, it is just so idiosyncratic. As
2: you'll hear later in our lists, this, yeah, was a great one for cult genre movies.
1: Hmm.
0: So, my number eight is another predictable one. Spider-Man No Way Home.
2: Later. So, my number eight is a movie that might give uh, Harley and Lawson a little bit of pause that I'm talking about it, but not necessarily like Dark Phoenix, though it has some things in common. My number 8 is Chloe Zhao's Eternals. I loved this movie. It isn't my favorite superhero movie, but it is fucking close. This spoke to me. I love history. I love ancient history. I love the ideas that this movie has about humanity, about being a part of community. It's also a movie about family. It's about how relationships grow and tension grows over time, but on such a macro scale, this we're talking about thousands of years for these people. The score from Raman Jawadi is gorgeous. You've got a lot of great light motifs here. Use of organ which should be in all of Raman Jawadi's scores from here on out. Cause he just knows how to use it sounds like Interstellar. It sounds like Dark Phoenix. It sounds like all of these other movies. It sounds like it's stuff for Westworld. Also, this movie looks gorgeous. The way that the sh- shots are framed shows off Chloe Zhao's eye for detail. And the cinematographer's eye for detail. There is such a great use of the powers of all of the characters. When Icarus and Makari are fighting... It is incredible. It is one of the best versions of super speed I have ever seen on a movie. And it's the way that I have always pictured it happening. And I loved it. This movie spoke to my soul with just the fact that it is so mature. It is so serious. And hey, I gotta give props to any movie that uses Pink Floyd in it.
1: Yeah, it makes me really, really excited for the direction that the MCU seems to be yeah. going in. I mean, this and Spider-Man, it just seems to be going outward and sideways, you know, yeah. galactic and interdimensional, and I'm so on board for that. I still think it's one of the great sleights of hand in cinema history that Marvel had... It's like the frog in the slowly heating up water. They've convinced the mainstream to go along with their gigantic interdimensional space opera soap opera series uh, where every installment is a gigantic success, even if you you tried to sell a movie like this without the MCU thing attached it would be a real tough sell because it's just so out there, it's so nerdy and I just love that they have tricked the mainstream into going along with it just by turning up the heat so gradually. I mean, this is a franchise that started with Robert Downey Jr. and Jeff Bridges hitting each other in mech suits
2: Yeah, and I just love that we're at the point of These alien robots, automaton, living, breathing things that are thousands of years old. I love that this is a movie that looks so gorgeous. I love that this is a movie directed by a relatively up-and-coming indie filmmaker known for far smaller, more character-driven things. I love that this is the first MCU film that has a semi-explicit sex scene. I love that this is such a mature film how epic in scope it is, and it's just going in such an interesting
1: direction.
2: Even though this movie seemed to be a critical failure, it still made all of the money, and I'm so happy about that.
1: So my number eight is one that I think is going to pop up on at least one of your lists higher. It's Halloween Kills. No, really? Wow.
0: It was on the cusp,
2: my dude. It was on the cusp, and... Do you want to know the thing that actually stopped me from putting it as my ten? What's that? Evil dies tonight. <laughs> yeah.
1: Again, you the smallest things will you hold a grudge against? But... No,
2: but I just had to be very mercenary this year, and I had to look at what faults did these movies have that I could see becoming mountainous, and that is sort of a pretty solid misstep. In my
0: eyes to explain why it's not on my list it's i like putting movies on my list that surprised me or went different places halloween kills is just more of what i really really like from halloween 2018 just nastier
1: i think one of the reasons i love this so much is that i mean i know it's a controversial movie i mean it's been pretty polarizing among fans of the halloween franchise but i love the whole thing just because it really is it's a it's a great blend of the original Halloween two and the original Halloween four. Yeah. And like the but just turning into this whole thing of this town under siege by Michael Myers, everyone's getting a posse together, they're going out there to stop him. Like the sheer scale of it is extraordinary. Yeah. It's as you said, highly nasty. It has some of the most brutal kills in the whole franchise. It's, it's just got so many good ideas. I, I like the fact that it's taking place so soon in the aftermath of the 2018 movie yeah. that it is the same night. I like the fact that that, again, is sort of drawing back to that original Halloween too. But I like all of the messaging and stuff it's got going on with, you know, fear and angry mobs and stuff. I mean, it is one of those movies that was filmed before the pandemic started that then became, like, really topical afterwards.
0: After we saw it all together in the cinemas, uh, we were walking out and, Lawson, you mentioned how similar seeing the people trying to smash down the doors looked to a significant event that happened.
1: Yeah. And, like, the John Carpenter score is so incredible. It makes some choices that I am really excited about. I think that killing off the character that kills off in the last minute is one I didn't really see coming. Mm. But I also love what they seem to be setting up with Michael Myers, that yeah. he is something other than human, whether that is ever explicitly explained, but, like, the fact that that it's been there since the very first. I mean, he gets shot by Luma six times at the end of the first movie, and he vanishes. I mean, that's been there ever since Carpenter's original vision of the character. So I, I think the idea of setting him up as something else, setting himself up as sort of the thematic embodiment of fear itself, mm-hmm. as sort of almost being fueled by the hysteria of his victims, is a really interesting place. And, uh, you know, it could all fall flat on its face in the third one. It could all go into some Cult of Thorn-level bullshit. Honestly,
2: I don't care if it does. If it all goes tits-up, it's going to be in the most entertaining way possible.
1: But everything we have seen so far, I've been really impressed by. And I just love having Jamie Lee Curtis back on screen in a role like this. I mean, she is a fantastic actress and she just sort of, everyone just forgot about her after like Freaky Friday was probably the last one pre-Halloween 2018 that she really got like some juicy stuff to do in. Then she was
2: in Knives Out.
1: Then she was in Knives Out. She's in an A24 movie coming out that seems like a good time. I am really enjoying seeing her back and I hope that it keeps fueling a sort of career revitalizing thing for her.
2: And also great performances from Judy Greer and Andy Matichak.
1: Mm.
0: All right, so we're up to my number seven? Correct. My number seven is The French Dispatch. Do we have it any later on anyone's?
1: No, that was Jean's nine.
0: Was it on the cusp for you, Lawson? Not really. French Dispatch is the most recent Wes Anderson film. He has his cast back. Yeah. It's easier to just say that than to list them all, except we've got a couple of new ones. We've got Timothy Chalamet and Jeffrey Wright. I really, really dug this. This is a movie about telling stories and about the importance of stories, and that's always a really good shorthand to me liking something. Yeah. As someone who thinks a lot about storytelling as an art form, I love movies that I think is like me, and it's just some more of like the brilliant Wes Andersonisms: the position of the camera, the staging of everything, the utter precision with which he gets his actors to move. Use of animation. Use of animation in one (laughs) sequence. It just has a lot of character. It's charming, it's fun, it's artsy, it's smart. Is it
2: the best Wes Anderson? Not necessarily, but it is still thoroughly entertaining. A fantastic uh, Adrian Brody performance in one sequence. There is great Jeffrey Wright here. Timothy Chalamet is playing such a weedy little... Faux revolutionary, and it is a love letter to storytelling and not only films but journalism as well. Travelogues, food blogs, anything where people are telling a story with a little bit of pizzazz and flair. It is so entertaining and meticulously crafted. My number seven is a little controversial movie that has seemed to further polarize people in this world of ours, because people just can't agree with scientists, it is Don't Look Up. It's not further on anyone else's list? No. We watched this a few weeks ago, and there's a lot more that I talked about in that episode where we talked about it, but the ending for this movie is sort of what I want to talk about here. It left me with a sense of hope, and it left me with a sense of... Even in the darkest hours, humanity can shine through. And the end of this movie is humanity's darkest hour. Everyone is going to die. Everyone. This movie is witty. It is biting. It is satirical. It is 100% taking a side. And its side is on for the scientists. Scientists who are begging and pleading for people to listen.
1: I do love that it goes there, yeah. that it's like, no, the world is destroyed. Yeah. yeah. Everyone dicks around and the world is destroyed. I mean, it doesn't try and pull its punch. It doesn't... Like, I, I love that final line that Leonardo DiCaprio has. I think it's like... um, We
2: really had everything, didn't we?
1: Yeah. And, uh, like, that idea we're just figuring it all away Yeah, is, I think, a, a powerful one. I I don't think it's as good as Vice, which was Adam McKay's last serious film. I was really looking forward to it. I was a little let down by it. Um, I wasn't, wouldn't say I was disappointed, I, but it just didn't connect with me in the way I was really hoping it would, given that Vice was my favourite movie of 2018. But um, I think it's just a little too... The, the thing that really kept it off was, the list was that it's a little too flabby. There are just a few things that I could do without. I mean, I, I think that the Jonah Hill character can go entirely, but I also think that the whole subplot with Leonardo DiCaprio and Cate Blanchett is yeah. a subplot too far. I mean, I think I said it when I talked about it when I saw it initially, too. It's just, its eyes are a little too big for its stomach. Sure. Yeah, It has too many targets. And I think it would have been a little more effective if it had focused in a little more. That, or do with like, an eight-episode limited yeah. series version yeah. of this story? Give but... it
0: time to breathe. Sure.
2: I do agree with those criticisms, but, like, the Nicholas Wrightel score... Just goes to such a apocalyptic place. But it's an apocalypse with jazz and science. And just the rising tension of the jazz orchestra and the synths is incredible. The music and the pace of it reminded me of Birdman a lot. And it also reminds me of a song by A Perfect Circle called So Long and Thanks for All the Fish which is a very apocalyptic but bittersweet and joyous thing of...
1: I assume well, you're talking about a different song than the one that played in the opening credits of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the it's Galaxy It's actually movie.
0: quite similar to that one. Well, I would argue it's not really that similar, but it's similar in meaning.
2: Similar in meaning, the nothing we can really do now. So let's look back on what we have done, the good things we have done, and try to take a little bit of comfort in the fact that, hey, we got to this point. So that's my number seven.
1: Well, my number seven is one that I know h- Harley, at least has indicated to me that this movie is on his list, so it must, must be higher. Uh, it's Malignant. Yep.
0: Oh, just higher on mine. S- just a step yep. higher.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh,
0: so my number six is Malignant. Higher.
2: <laughs> so my number six is Spider-Man No Way Home. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I was worrying that I wouldn't be able to put it on the list, but having rewatched specific scenes, it reaffirmed how much I loved this movie. It takes all of the returning characters to such interesting places, and it carries on their character arcs that you thought were done. And I loved seeing a lot of them interact when we never got to see that before. I loved what all of the villains meant to Tom Holland's Spider-Man. And how all of these cameos and returning people weren't just for fan service. They were for fan service, but not just for that. They were very important to the development of this Peter Parker. Unbeknownst to all of us, we got an origin story. We just didn't see him get bitten by the spider. We got a three-film origin story to find Peter at exactly the place he needs to be to become the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It just took a little
1: bit.
0: What I like about this is that it went there. It brought back Toby and Andrew. It made those characters significant.
3: Yeah.
1: I love seeing Andrew Garfield back. He he was our big missed opportunity with Spider-Man. I mean, we didn't know what we had till he was gone. Yeah. yeah. Like, he never got the fair shake of the leg that he, he needed to.
2: And now you've got so many people being like, we want an amazing Spider-Man 3.
1: Yeah. Well, I think everyone was just kind of like, oh, we want more Tobey Maguire movies and it's too soon to reboot it." blah, blah, blah. Whereas, I mean, that it, we'd already had Garfield so that there was a distance between Maguire and Holland so that didn't hurt Holland. And then everyone was just so excited that the MCU thing was happening. That, And also they didn't try and retell the origin story yeah. in the MCU that they dodged that criticism. But, I mean, Andrew Garfield, bless him. Great year for Andrew Garfield. Oh, Great year excellent for Andrew Garfield. year
0: for
2: Mr. Garfield.
0: What? I like about them being in here so much is they were important. Yeah. They didn't just pop in for no reason. They're not
2: Howard the Dark at the end of Endgame.
0: They were important to the journey that Tom Holland Spider-Man is on. I also like that they went there with Green Goblin. Yeah. Green Goblin will always, always be the person who hurts Spider-Man the most. Be it Harry or be it Norman.
1: The one thing I will say, they should have killed off the Maguire Spider-Man. They shouldn't have done the fake out with the spear um, or the glider or whatever. They should have just killed him off. I think that would have been a really surprising thing. I think it would have actually, you know, really stuck the knife in, in a way that I would have appreciated. Mm. But mainly I just, I'm really tired of heroes having the near-death experience, but then being fine like five minutes later.
0: Just kill some
1: of them. Get off the fence. Just do it or don't do it.
2: Also, there's an amazing Michael Giacchino score here. The orchestra, the choirs used here are incredible. There's an amazing piece of choir during the fight, first fight scene between Goblin and uh, Holland Spider-Man. P- the part where one of them gets flung out the window and then flung back through.
0: You see Willem Dafoe pile drive Tom Holland through a building.
2: And it's excellent
1: yeah this is the movie that was really fighting for right with Raya and the last dragon for the number 10 spot i mean it's just a movie with so much charisma and yeah. so much fun i mean it's just packed with movie stars i mean you've got tom holland and andrew garfield and zendaya i mean they are the the new generation of movie stars right there
2: and you've also got reese fans coming back jamie fox alfred molino willem dafoe jk simmons jacob Battleon. Doctor Strange, Benedict Cumberbatch is here, my favourite superhero.
1: What do you think the over-under is on Tom Holland turning up in Multiverse of Madness?
0: I think pretty I
2: think slam. there's a chance of him coming as a variant. Mm.
0: I really thought this. Spider-Man is my favourite Marvel hero, and this was a very confident and assured and mature hand from John Watts as well, as
1: director. My number six is a movie that I know you guys haven't seen. It is Red Rocket. This is a movie that really made an impact on me when I saw it in the cinema. I walked out of it just rolling it over in my head and thinking a lot about it. And I wasn't really sure how much I liked it. I knew I liked it, but I didn't know how much I liked it walking out of the cinema. But the more time I've had to sit and think about it, it has just grown more and more impressive to me. And I've realized that this is actually a really incredible movie that I... Out and out love. It's it's a a difficult watch. I mean, it is about a, a middle aged porn star grooming a seventeen year old girl to enter the porn industry. But it has such a assured hand, such a interesting script, characters that are really dynamic and complex, and that the director uses to play on that that sort of cinematic trick of your allegiance tends to be with the point of view character and to have the point of view character be a, like a really awful person. Mm. He uses that in such an interesting way to make commentary on current events, you know, the success of awful people in recent years. These people who do obviously terrible things and who are obviously obnoxious but have a bizarre charisma to them and everything just sort of keeps going their way. And it is like the one-two punch of the performances here Are just extraordinary. I mean, you have this new performer as the female lead, the girl, Susanna Sun. This is her first movie. The only thing she's been in before this are a couple of short films no one's ever heard of. But she is just an extraordinary find. But then you have Simon Rex, who was an MTV video DJ, was in the scary movie movies, and is sort of less like before this, the definition of kind of a B tier actor, of the kind of guy that you would just not take a second look at.
2: They're going to eventually be in one of the Anaconda straight-to-video movies.
1: Exactly, that that sort of thing. Like, the one-two punch of this this new talent and this guy just coming in after so many years, just slaving away doing bit parts in terrible movies, and it's sort of just to see him come in and knock it out of the park like this, there's a an element of, like, like how do you know how to do that Mm. There's that element to it.
2: The thing of, didn't know he had it in him.
1: Yeah. And I will admit, it has been great fun to watch all of the serious film critics try to dance around the fact that he used to do pornographic videos himself. That he did a handful of, uh, of solo porn videos back in the 90s. And it has been great fun to watch the serious critical establishment try to figure out how much of that they're allowed to mention. <laughs> I mean, it's it's part of the narrative, isn't it? That that you know there here is a sort of connection to the character as well. But literally, um, like it's... a
2: comeback.
1: Oh god! Let's that, move straight okay, didn't away. Didn't mean that. Let's, mean let's that. move that on. Let's move on uh, and start. You can you can take it away from here, Harley. Before Jean makes any more uh, porn-related analogies.
0: As soon as you said that Red Rocket was one of yours, I thought he was going to go there. (laughs)
2: That was unintentional, because he's having the same kind of resurgence as the character wants to have.
0: Uh, My number five is actually a trio of three movies, but since they all intrinsically linked together and came out, you know, in the same year, I think it's fair. They're
2: basically one movie.
0: If you don't think it's fair, I don't give a shit, it's my list. (laughs) It is, of course, Fear Street. All three chapters, the first being Fear Street Part 1, 1994 the second one being Part 2, 1978, and the third being Part 3, 1666. This is some really just excellent horror and slasher stuff. Mm. It's a sprawling story about generational trauma, personal trauma, how one can be vilified by their community, the pain that can come from feeling isolated, but also about finding those people in your life that mean something to you and coming together to defeat... The evils of the past and the horrors that have been wrought by people still profiting off of terrible deeds of their ancestors are sometimes unaware of that and sometimes painfully aware of that.
2: When one of the first shots in your movie is a shot of an old antebellum style house a house where they 100% had slaves in the past the allegory is not subtle.
0: Yeah, I just think This was really, really tight storytelling. The way they translate each year it's set in is really well done. The cast is great as well.
2: You've got a lot of people doing double duty too. Yeah,
0: between all the movies, there's a lot of double duty being done. And I love the slasher designs of some of the killers. Oh yeah. It's just classic stuff. You get a ghost-faced esque looking killer. You get your classic Hessian bag Jason Voorhees looking slasher. It's just really excellent stuff.
2: What do you think was the scariest shot of the entire film? I think it's the guy in the church with the hook having put out the kid's eyes.
0: And his own as well. Yeah. 1666 is actually really intense as a period piece.
2: It's some The Witch kind of shit.
0: Yeah, but not too far though. What I like about it is it takes itself seriously. It has weight but it is still appropriate for a teenage audience. And I feel like we need more horror aimed towards teenagers that take itself seriously.
1: It's like a grittier Goosebumps.
0: Yeah, that's what Fear Street initially was. It's based off the R.L. Stein books.
1: It seems like it was really successful for Netflix. I hope that we see more of them. Mm. I would like to see all sorts of, you know, different years and different genres of horror. But I would like to see, like, Fear Street... 2360-something, I don't know. Yeah. Like a spaceship. Far
0: future. Oh, I would love to see, like, a 1920s.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let's do all of the different genres. You don't even need to stick it to slashes if you don't want to. You can explore, you know, all sorts of genres.
2: Yeah. Haunted House, you can go with some kind of apocalyptic biblical horror.
1: Yeah. Like, it's so,
0: it's so much potential. Yeah. And I just adored it. It's, it's excellent slasher stuff.
2: Well, my number five is a movie that I was so happy I got to watch. It is stylish beyond belief. It is everything that is great about A24, horror movies. It is The Green Knight. I adored this film so much. Dev Patel is a wondrous actor. The way that he portrayed just the cowardice of Sir Gawain was fantastic. The way this movie looks and sounds is like renaissance paintings. It's gorgeous to look at. It is brilliantly shot, framed, acted. You've got excellent little bit parts from Barry Cahogan, Erin Kellyman, Alicia Vikander, and Joel Edgerton as the Lord of the Manor. There's so much great stuff here. I knew from the moment I saw the trailer that this was going to be a movie that spoke to me. It is a movie about masculinity and how it's not the same thing as chivalry. And how kindness towards people is paramount. Don't go in expecting anything from another person. Be good to someone. Don't just be nice. Be good because it's right, not because you expect something.
0: I love the uh, vision of the future. Yes. It's so Last Temptation of Christ. You would
2: love this movie, Lawson.
1: Oh yeah, it's definitely going on the list.
2: And the way that they portray the Green Knight. Ralph Innocent plays him and the design is fantastic.
0: It's also a movie about the terror of time. Yeah. How everything returns to the green.
2: Yeah, and how that's not necessarily a horrifying idea.
0: It doesn't have to be, but for some it is.
2: Death is inevitable. It is one of the things that equalizes everyone.
0: Yeah, and that's the lesson of the Green Knight tale, and always has been. Time is inescapable. You must reckon with fate.
2: And I think my... Love of this movie can be summed up in one interaction between Gawain and St. Winifred, played by Erin Kellyman. She is asking him to jump into a river to retrieve her skull. And he says, What will I get out of this? And she says, Why would you ask me that? That sums the movie up succinctly and perfectly. And it was one of the moments in film this year that hit me like a punch to the gut because of what has happened to this character it is stylish beyond belief it is such a brilliant version of the Arthurian legend the world it depicts is incredible and A24 has not gone wrong one step in terms of the movies I've seen And this is an example of why I will always buy a ticket to one of their
3: films.
1: Alright, well, my number five is one that I'm confident is higher up on your list, because it's been indicated to me it's on at least one of your lists. It's Tick-Tick-Boom.
0: Higher. Higher. Well, in fact, it's right now for me anyway, so...
2: Higher for me. My number four, I hope to God it is higher on someone's list, because it pains me to have it in the number four spot, because I loved it just so much. I am talking about Shadow in the Cloud. Higher.
1: How dare you, John? How dare it be that low on your list? It's
2: higher, my dude. Come on. Higher on mine. Thank God. Thank God. It pained me (laughs) to have it not be in the top three. But I just want to preface getting to this point in the list by saying every movie from five to three can switch places depending on my mood. All of these movies are sort of swirling around each other, and this is just what I've landed on for today. Tomorrow, it will be different. I loved these movies equally. Lawson,
0: what about you?
1: Well, my number four is another one I know you guys haven't seen. It is The Night House, the horror movie that I suppose to me is probably this year's The Empty Man. It's not nearly as trippy as that, but it is of a type there where it was just so much more than I was expecting. It has such incredible style and it is challenging and interesting and spooky and emotional. It is an outstanding film just about this woman played by Rebecca Hall giving one of the best performances of 2021, grieving the recent suicide of her husband and being haunted by something and figuring out more and more about a secret life that she didn't know her husband was leading, and a connection that is cosmic and scary and intensely, existentially awful. <laughs> she is being pursued by something that is not a ghost, not a demon, but something, something worse, something bigger. And it just has so much extraordinary emotion uh, so much meaning underneath it all. Uh, it really connected with me. It has an absolutely gorgeous score, and it's so well shot, so well filmed. It's directed by, I think his name is David Bruckner, who directed The Ritual. It's definitely got him a new fan. Uh, from me, I will definitely be looking out for the movies that he does going forward. It is a really, really interesting film, and it has one of my favourite scenes of the year in it. A scene that is somehow simultaneously both breathtakingly emotional and terrifying. It just has a lot going on, and it is really impressive. And I look forward to doing our inevitable episode on it, because I've got a lot of things that I want to say that I'm intentionally dancing around, because I want you guys to... It's on Disney+. Plus. ...be able to experience it. Yes, it is one of those, those Fox holdovers from when they acquired Fox, and I can just imagine the irritation of some suits in a boardroom somewhere going uh we need to put out this bullshit because it's so not anything disney would have greenlit yeah i look forward to talking about it with you i've been intentionally vague so that you guys can experience it as fresh as possible so yeah harley your number 3
0: ah uh, my number 3 my number 3 is a little one man show called inside by bob burnham who did pretty much everything on this. It is his most recent comedy special, uh, which is what it's classed as, but I consider this a film. He has recorded the songs that he's singing himself. He's recorded all the footage himself. It's all set in this one room. It's like his workspace. And I've never seen a movie do that kind of thing with its lighting before. It's Brechtian, in a sense. You see how he's doing everything he's doing with the lighting. You see the rigs, you see the cords on the ground. In certain parts, you see him setting stuff up. And not only was it incredibly, incredibly well-made, it was also really important to me at the start of this year. You know, it's it's a piece of pandemic art. Yeah, And it really got to me. It has a sense of humor, of course, but it also has this sense of deep sadness.
2: A desire to understand people and care for people.
0: Well, yeah, and it also has a desire to... It both has a desire to go outside, but also a fear of going outside. Yeah. Inside, outside of two very, very important concepts to this, in all that they mean. This also is the film who win- that wins my award for Golden Barney. Uh, Golden Barney referring to that scene from The Simpsons where... It's a film festival happening in Springfield, and Barney brings in a super dramatic art house film about his alcoholism. And in the episode of Simpsons, it's hysterical.
3: Don't cry for me. I'm already dead.
0: But I give the Golden Barney Award to whatever film is both deeply sincere, but also incredibly funny. And the particular scene is the all eyes on me sequence. Hmm because not only is it an intensely emotional cry of anguish, but it's also really funny in some of the ways it's presented. It's just a wonderful piece of art. It's authorship pure. It's like a one-man show fully, and we're never going to get something like this from Boban again.
1: Well, we hope not. (laughs) I don't want another pandemic if that's what has to happen to get a sequel.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I can't wait to see him on stage again.
1: I really want Bo Burnham to write and direct a musical movie. Yeah, yeah. I think he'd be great at it. He's
0: a wonderful artist. Mm. Just brilliant stuff. John, what's your third?
2: My number three is based on a very old work. It is the best version of this work that I have ever seen. It is the tragedy higher. of Beth.
1: Higher. Well, not, not higher, actually. It's also my number three. But if it's higher on Harley's list, then that means we will table it.
0: Okay, then. My number two is a movie that has been at the top of my list all year. Since we saw it the first time in cinemas, I knew it was either going to be number one or number two. I said it the moment we left the cinema. Mm. It's Shadow in the Cloud. Higher. Yes! (laughs) Yes! (laughs)
2: Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely! You stuck to your guns and I'm so proud of you. You committed in a way I couldn't.
1: All right then Jean, what's your number 2?
2: My number 2 is malignant. I adored this movie from the opening scene. This opening scene, imagine it. Cue an outside shot of an incredibly comic booky looking <laughs> asylum on a <laughs> cliff overlooking a stormy ocean. We go inside of the asylum. We go down levels. We follow a doctor. She walks towards a room. Chaos occurs within this room. Blood sprays across one of the windows. She walks in. There is a creature controlling the electricity. She turns and says, We have to cut out the cancer. Q, Where Is My Mind, played by Safari Riot, in what I think is the best version of this song I have ever fucking heard.
0: Man, I love (laughs) Malignant.
2: This movie rocks. This movie is everything James Wan does well. It is a horror movie. This is Dead Silence on crack. This is...
1: It's bonkers. It's out of its mind. This (laughs) movie is
2: out of its mind in the best ways. This has the lighting of a Dario Argento film. This movie has the action of a superhero movie. (laughs) It has the brutality of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is off-the-wall gonzo in all of the best ways. Joseph Bishara came to play in one of the best horror scores I've ever heard.
0: Gabriel is like Edward Mordrake as a supervillain.
2: The action scenes are so well choreographed. The stunt work is impeccable.
0: Gabriel the killer is the back of lead's head.
1: <laughs> it's fantastic. It's so <laughs> ridiculous. It's great.
2: It has one of the best shots in all of cinema. A chair <laughs> gets thrown across a chaos-stricken police station, and smacks two people who are trying to escape through a door.
1: The whole I know kung fu thing that Gabriel does in that cop, yeah. that weirdly spacious police station lobby <laughs> um, is just extraordinary.
0: Speaking
2: of... It wins the Hans Moleman Award for perfect physical comedy.
0: Just that
1: Explain oh. the Hans Molman Award. You can't just chuck that out there like ever. Oh, of course, The
0: Hans, Hans Molman <laughs> Award for physical comedy stems from the exact same episode of The Simpsons, Hans Molman's entrance into the Springfield Film Festival.
3: Hans Molman Productions presents Man Getting Hit by Football. <laughs> <laughs> this contest is over. Give that man the $10,000. This isn't America's Funniest Home Videos. But the ball is growing! It works at so many levels! Roll it again.
0: Belignin is fantastic. It's, it's cult horror insanity. And even, like,
1: like, you focus so much on the stuff at the end, but it's, it's got so much incredible, mm. so many incredible moments throughout, like the scene where you know, we keep cutting away to this hostage trying to free-, free herself, and finally she frees herself and falls through the floor of the attic, down into another scene with all these characters yeah. it's such a great reveal that actually she's been the main character's attic the whole yeah, time I watched
0: it last night and between the, ce- the previous scene where the hypnotherapy session ends and when the prisoner falls through the roof and escapes There's establishing shots of San Francisco, but those establishing shots are bullshit. They're a lie. It's the same location, people!
2: (laughs) And I love the way that the house is shot as well. When it's night, the use of fog is obscuring everything else. This house could be in the middle of a dreamscape, for as far as anyone knows. But during the day, you can see, it is right next to other houses.
0: Malignant is fantastic.
1: Yes, it's berserk in the best way. Uh, that brings me to my number two, which is Werewolves Within. I actually thought it would be on at least one of your lists, especially since you both agreed with me that it was the best video game movie and you put Sonic the Hedgehog on last year. It's Harley an honourable mention,
0: an incredibly honourable mention. Against, it was going up against a lot of
1: stuff. Sure. It's just such a fun film. Like, it's a genuine whodunit. It's a genuine old school Agatha Christie. The phone lines are down, the roads are cut off, and everyone's stuck in this hotel with a killer amongst them. Except it's a will. And that's just so fantastic. And it is incredibly funny. It is tense. I wouldn't say it's outright scary, but it's tense. And just the the dialogue is so witty. It's so well-written, the way these characters interact with each other and the way that it is is getting at, again, these sort of broader themes of disunity within a community, a, a community turning on each other, uh, going at each other's throats. And it has such personality, such wit, and such an intelligence to it. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I I love the performances as well. I think it's got a great cast of uh, very funny, very interesting characters. I especially like... The performance by Milana Vayntrub yeah. as the female lead, I think she is a great choice for that uh, that character because she can she can she's playing a manic pixie dream girl yeah. until you realize actually that's all an act. She's the werewolf, mm-hmm. and that she can do both of those things and make that pivot so effortlessly.
2: Do you want to know what line chilled me to the bone during this movie? The one where she's talking about the first guy that she bit the hand off of and said, you know some men do that thing where they hover their hand so close to a woman's waist to lead her. I can't stand it.
1: Well, like I like I said, yeah, there's just so much going on there. There's there's that, there's the sort of I mean it's in keeping with its a previous movie, right? Yeah. Scare Me. Yeah. Like you talked about that last year or the year before last, but this director I'm I'm very Josh Rubin. yeah, Josh Rubin. I'm very impressed by his work, and it seems like he has a real interest in using comedy horror to tackle some big ideas and some big issues. And he does so really well here. And again, it's just it's just a really effective mystery. The whole thing doesn't really work unless it also works as a standard whodunners, and it does work. It's got that great bonkers finale where everyone just starts dying, bang, 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 yeah. like all in a row. Uh, It's just a really great surprise.
2: And it's werewolves!
1: Yeah. We are a pro-werewolf podcast. We're an
2: incredibly pro-werewolf
0: podcast.
1: Alright then. Harley, you're number one, and I know what it is, just through a process of elimination.
0: Yeah, okay. My number one is The Tragedy of Macbeth.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. It is my number three, and it is Sean's number three.
0: The Tragedy of Macbeth is the best adaptation of Macbeth I've ever seen. Yep. Like, full stop. The staging is... German Expressionist to the hilt. The The black and white, the performances from Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington are just outstanding. They nail the Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow monologue, which is so rare. I love the witches.
2: Oh, the witches the are witches incredible. Sequence,
0: it's the, the contortionist stuff, how this one witch is speaking all three witches' lines until when the witch stands up and you see the witch's reflection in the water, and
1: it's two more? It's brilliantly staged, it looks absolutely astonishing. It just just the cinematography, the lighting, the black and white, it looks so gorgeous.
0: They use painted shadows.
1: Yeah. I think I um I said when I talked about it after seeing it in the cinemas that it's not four by three, that it curves inwards towards the top. I actually don't think that's true. I think there's just a problem with the projector <laughs> yeah, at my cinema because I've seen some clips of it since. It is
0: four by 4x3.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: But the curving on the corners is a nice aesthetic anyway.
1: Yeah. But it's a great modern adaptation of that play. It makes a lot of interesting choices in particularly the character of Ross that it implies such greater agency on his part. It implies that he's the one that kills Lady Macbeth. I think that's a really interesting choice. The it's just
0: room sequence.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's, or the, the, the silver dagger um, that he sees, which is just the door handle. I mean, it's just an effortless Shakespeare adaptation that is, it does what all great Shakespeare adaptations do, which is take this 400-year-old text and remind us all how relevant it all still is and how vital it all still is. I mean, it has a. It's not old. It's not stuffy. It has a vitality and an excitement and a genuine emotion to it that good filmmakers and and good actors and and craftsmen can bring into it. People like uh, Joel Cohen, people like Baz Luhrmann, people like you know the actors. I I really hope that we get more mid tier mid tier budgeted. Shakespeare adaptations like this. I mean, I think it's been a while since we got a really high-profile one in the way that this is. Mm. I think probably maybe The Tempest with Helen Mirren back in 2011. That would be really the last one, unless I'm missing one. Along, mm. Oh, no, Macbeth with Michael Fassbender, actually.
0: This is a superior version to that one, I think. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. That's, um, more intimate. that's one of the great achievements of it as well, is we're, we're six years when that movie came out, six years out of the last Major Macbeth movie, and yet it justifies its own existence entirely. Mm.
2: The style of this movie is jaw-dropping. What I tried to do with my list this year was was my mouth open at points when I was watching these movies? Was my jaw on the floor? And for all of the movies here, I was at certain moments. The particular moment for Tragedy of Macbeth was when we first see stars in the sky in this movie. That amazed me with its beauty. When the door opened and you just see that faint image of the night sky. The scope of this movie, the emotional heft it has, the way it does the witches. It's perfect.
0: So, John, what is your first?
2: My number one spot uh, is a tiny bit of an upset because it was the last movie from 2021 that I've seen in a year. It is Tick, Tick, Boom.
1: Yes, you guys both saw this this week. It is, it's also turned up on both of our lists prior. It's Harley's fourth and it is my fifth. So why don't you guys lead the discussion on this since you, you have just seen it this week.
0: Tick, Tick, Boom is directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It stars Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Loss and Jonathan Loss is the man who wrote Rent. And this is an adaptation of one of the performances that Jonathan Loss and- Lawson did, called Tick, Tick, Boom. It's actually
2: an adaptation of two different things. A rock monologue that he performed as well as Tick, Tick, Boom, which it's merged and turned into a musical.
1: It was adapted out after his death yeah. to yeah. be turned into a, like a small-scale musical. Yeah,
2: This hit me very hard. As someone who has done theatre before. Not musical theatre, because I can't sing for shit, but... I... As someone who... understands what it is to be an artist, and... to exist in that space, and to love art, and also... has... at times... prioritized... working on a piece of art over... my own mental health, or over... going to the movies with friends, or... things like that. And... as someone who loves to perform for people, this movie spoke to me deeply. It was the most emotional I have been watching a movie this year, because it just got it. It is a movie that was directed and written by artists from New York who have tried desperately and have succeeded at making Broadway a home for themselves. It is a movie about... Knowing what you have before it's gone. It's a movie about not getting so wound up in your own life that you forget the world that is happening. It is a movie that is severely interested in the 90s in New York and everything that that entails. It is invested in talking about rolling blackouts, poverty, the AIDS crisis is a shadow of death hanging over this film, and it has some of the most heartbreaking moments in it. And the music is incredible,
1: too.
0: Andrew Garfield can sing. Yeah. Who saw that coming? It's, it's bullshit how great he is at everything.
1: He is my favourite performance of 2021. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the ragdoll energy that he captures is... It's an incredible, vibrant energy that he embodies throughout this. And I just, I couldn't take my eyes off him whenever he was on screen.
0: It's an incredible, incredible movie. Lawson, I think we all know what your top of 2021
1: is. That's right, baby. Shadow in the Cloud. Yes! (laughs) Favourite movie of 2021. I mean, it's, look, this is, this is, it's movies like this that are the exact reason why we say it's our favourite movies of the year and not necessarily the best. Not a chance in hell I'm naming this movie the best movie of 2021. I mean, I would name Macbeth if I was being yeah. asked that. But I had no better time watching a movie in 2021 than I did with Shadow in the Cloud. It is just everything that I want it to be. It's like it's like it was made specifically for me. Like someone yeah. peeked into my psyche and said, what would this guy specifically Want out of a movie and what they have come up with is fantastic and incredible and it's just surprising creative it's smarter than people give it credit for or initially appear or that initially appeals appears to be it's got more style it's got those sort of cutaways and imagined spots and things and it has its cake and eat it too it's a it's a, a one person enclosed drama about Um, Chloe Grace Moretz locked inside this turret until it isn't anymore, until it is this absolutely bonkers airplane fight, which features maybe I I wouldn't be able to call my favorite scene of the year because it's more like 15 seconds of footage, but Chloe Grace Moretz falling out of an airplane, an explosion going off beneath her, and then her being blasted back into the airplane she just fell out of by the shockwave. I mean, that is the kind of thing that cinema was made for. Yeah. I was in a theatre and people cheered when that happened. Mm. I cheered when that
2: She happened. broke the gremlin's arm over her knee, took its claw and cut its throat with its own claw. Brilliant.
1: Is it perfect? No. Is it goofy in some ways? Absolutely. Does it nail all of the themes that it's trying to deal with? Probably not. But... Jesus, it's just such a fun movie. It's just so in my wheelhouse.
0: It's so perfect for us, it's become shorthand.
1: Yeah. That's how I managed to convince you guys to go and see Malignant. I said this is a red alert shadow in the cloud situation. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, it speaks to us because it is colourful, exciting, ballsy. The lighting is gorgeous. The score by Mahuya Bridgman Cooper is. Since it is '80s, it is beautiful,
0: and you gotta love that it pissed off the sexist chuds online. Oh yes.
1: yeah, <laughs> it's weird. It's a mixture of those people, but then people saying, "I just couldn't take it seriously." I'm like, "It's about a gremlin on a plane." What? What did you think this was going to be? Did you think this was going to be like? Truffaut or something, or or a Mike Nichols movie. No, it's about a gremlin on a plane. It's exactly what it should be.
0: It's pulpy chaos, and I love it. Exactly. While I adore Tragedy of Macbeth, and I think it is my favourite of 2021, I'm never having more fun with a movie than I am with Shadow in the Cloud.
1: Oh yeah, beginning to end, it is... It's not a perfect movie, but it is perfect for us. Yeah.
0: And that's all that counts.
1: It does not misstep for us. <laughs> Everything about it is geared to it being the absolute best time we could have watching a movie. Like right down to those those opening animated things of the the, the fake period PSA animated stuff at the beginning, right down to Finishing off with Hounds of Love, the Kate Bush song is the end credit sequence, which was the first time that I heard that song. And because I saw Shadow in the Cloud in January of last year, Hounds of Love was my most listened to song on Spotify of 2021. <laughs> like, everything about this was designed for me. And the music is
2: there supporting images of female soldiers throughout wars and female airmen and female snipers, female just pe- members of the army, nurses. Naval officers, all of these women who wanted to risk their lives and their own safety to protect people.
1: And there are people who, who can't appreciate this. People who who think it's too silly, or you know, have other problems. Look, if you can't appreciate a movie about a gremlin on a plane, then why are you listening to this podcast? Exactly. Seriously. Did we not lose you somewhere along the way with the Lithgo and the Truth bot and the serialized <laughs> post-apocalyptic narrative? Why are you still here?
0: It's like that Junji Ito story, The Yamagawa Fault. This was made for me. Hmm. This, this is my, my hole. hole. It was made <laughs> for me! And I'm gonna walk into it.
2: Hey, the moment those first synth beats come, just pounding on it the keyboard. heart. And the moment that you see the shot of the plane, the moment that you see her walking towards the plane the moment that you see and hear something is wrong with the undercarriage of the plane is the moment this movie had me in its claws
1: it's the second year in a row that my favorite movie has been one of the very first movies i saw in cinemas like last time it was the gentleman which was the very first 2020 movie i saw in cinemas here i think it was like the third or fourth somewhere around there but I don't have that this year. None of the movies I've seen so far this year stand out in that same way. So I'm looking forward to perhaps a little more su- little more surprise, a little more competition, yeah. because once you have that level of runway, it's really difficult to variate from it.
0: Shadow in the Cloud just had a real head start.
1: Oh, yeah. And it just, like, it just is for me. And anyways, we do have some honourable mentions here. We're not going to go deep into them, but we're maybe just going to say a sentence or two about each one of them. So, why don't you guys say yours?
0: Uh, So, so some of my honourable mentions have been mentioned by John, but another honourable mention for me is Ghostbusters Afterlife. I truly, truly adored it.
1: Yes, I actually did think, as I was thinking about, oh, what might turn up on their list, I did think Ghostbusters Afterlife, might
0: Just on the cusp. Uh, Another two of my honourable mentions are uh, Halloween Kills, obviously, and Green Knight.
2: My honourable mentions are Ghostbusters Afterlife, funny, heartfelt, heartwarming, perfect starter for this new series of Ghostbusters movies. Zack Snyder's Justice League, everything in the kitchen sink, exactly what Zack Snyder intended. The music's great, the acting is great, I loved it. Inside, brilliant stuff from Bo Burnham, parroting everything that Harley said. Mortal Kombat, funny, action-packed, just... Really made me happy to watch it. Spiral. I just really like seeing Chris Rock yell at people. It makes me happy. And I loved the kills here. The Glass Thrower is one of the best sword traps I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Fast 9. The fact that they do that fake out with having Old Mate seemingly be crushed by a falling car. But then he turns out to be fine. That had me on the floor laughing as Harley and Lawson can attest. Fair Street, stylish, beautiful, the storytelling's incredible. It has themes going all the way from class struggle to race to LGBTQI rights, and has some of the nastiest kills of the year that come out of nowhere, which really shocked and surprised me, and I loved it. Old for just being creepy and shot beautifully and having one of the most horrifying scenes of the year. Halloween Kills for being Halloween Kills, need I say more? And Encanto, because as a podcast, we do in fact talk about Bruno.
1: Yes, not only Encanto's Bruno, but Bruno Bruno. Bruno. We we covered that as well. My honourable mentions here are ones that came close. They're ones I really wish I could have honoured, but just couldn't, just because everything else was a little higher. They're ones that I really wish I could have fitted onto a list here. But obviously there's Spider-Man No Way Home. I did come out of that movie thinking that that was going to be on the top ten pretty high up, actually, but I just... I don't know. I I do tend to gravitate towards more unique, you know, smaller things rather than big blockbuster sequels. But I've also got to call out Long Story Short, which is a sort of time travel movie, uh, a Groundhog Day by way of time travel sort of movie that's an Australian film that's directed by Josh Lawson. I talked about that earlier. Uh, last year. And that's a, a really fun film. Death of a Ladies Man, which is the Gabriel Byrne movie set to the music of Leonard Cohen, that came much closer to being on the top 10 than I really thought it would. It is flawed. It is rough in places. It is very much imperfect, but it is a gem nonetheless. Encanto, I really enjoyed the music in that. I thought the animation was gorgeous. But also, finally, Locked Down, the um, the quarantine comedy with Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor, I think that offers a really good insight into how the pandemic is going to be handled in fiction in the years to come. And, and indeed, the deep bench of stories that can be told using this as a defining moment in recent human history. Uh, I think that there's a lot there that can be said. And I think that movie was a really good head start to it. It's, it's emotional. It's funny. It's, it's a good snapshot of what we've all been going through, and certainly it's a it's a better film than that lunatic songbird movie set in 2023 where it's like a conspiracy theorist wet dream. But uh, yes, those are my honourable mentions, and as I did last year, I have been going through as we do these and marking down a number score for each of the titles that we give just to try and figure out what our cumulative uh, rankings are. So what I've done here is I have applied a number system to this for our number 10 picks that gave the movie a 1, for our number 1 picks that gave the movie a 10, and I've just added up what all of those final scores are uh, to create our cumulative top 10 lists. There are a lot of ties and a few crossovers, so actually there's only five movies that we talked about today that aren't on this top 10 list but tied for number 10 is Eternals and Halloween Kills. Number nine is Don't Look Up. Number eight is Red Rocket. Number seven is The Fear Street Trilogy, The French Dispatch and The Green Knight. Number six is The Night House. Number five is a tie between Bo Burnham Inside and Spider-Man No Way Home. Number four is Werewolves Within. Number three is Malignant. Number two is Tick, Tick, Boom. And number one is a tie between Shadow in the Cloud and the Tragedy of Macbeth. And does that not sum up our podcast, does it not? That our number one is a tie between Macbeth and Shadow in the Cloud.
0: (laughs) That boils it down quite nicely, I think.
1: Shakespeare! Gremlin on a plane, like right there, side by side. I love it.
2: If Shakespeare was alive today, he would love it.
1: (laughs) So we don't have our normal end of things this week, obviously, because we've been talking about so many different movies, but we have come up with a few things to do other than that. So we are going to go around and say what our most disappointing movie was of the year, what our favourite scene or sequence of the year was, and what performance would we most like to see recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow?
2: Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! Uh,
1: I will start us off and I will save for my most disappointing movie. Let's just start off here. We don't necessarily mean the worst movie here, like just the most disappointing movie, the movie that didn't live up to what we wanted it to be. There are plenty of bad movies I saw, but I wasn't expecting much out of them. But my most disappointing movie was the reboot of Candyman. It just fell flat on its face, in my opinion. It was, I was really excited about it. I thought there was a great way to take the Candyman mythos and update it into sort of our, our modern political era. I really thought that it was a Really cool opportunity, given the fact that it was um, black filmmakers that were making it, because I did think that that was the big flaw of that original trilogy of films, is that it was um, this sort of black horror through white filmmakers. But it just was a mess of a movie. It wasn't scary. It was frequently dull. And they mangled the continuity of the previous movies, the lore of Candyman. And it's so focused on the message that it forgets to build a narrative around the message and in so doing completely stunts the impact that the movie could and should have. So for me, that's got to be my most disappointing movie of the year in terms of my favorite scene or sequence of the year. I have thought about this quite a bit. I think, and there's a, there's a big part of me that wants to go with the end of malignant where he goes wild, but I need to, Go with something smaller and a little more delicate. And one of the things that really sums up what I like about the Nighthouse so much: the scene where Rebecca Hall, who has become increasingly convinced that this presence in her house is her deceased husband, every now and then she brushes against something or someone, and finally she she feels the presence in the room and just is like, "Is it you? Is it you? Please, you know, interact with me, touch with me. I need to know you're here." And um there's this long scene with this gorgeous string soundtrack of basically her reaching for this ghost, this presence, and something reaching back for her that you see the skin on her face indent as someone puts their hand on her cheek. And it's this gorgeous bit of music that's really powerful, really emotional. Um, It's sort of the the build-up that we've been waiting for this whole movie and then we get the the twist of the knife a voice that responds i'm not your husband mm. and the music sours instantly and it's just so effective and from that point on the movie is unrelenting uncompromising and intense and uh yeah it's sort of a, it's it's a scene that really sums up why the nighthouse worked for me in the way that it did and i don't think there's a scene i've thought about more in the year than that and finally what role I would like to see recast with Cary Dredd John Lithgow? Macbeth in The Tragedy of Macbeth. Absolutely. He has done Shakespeare before on the stage and I would just really like to see him in that role. I think he could bring a lot of power to it. He could bring the guilt, the sadness, the madness, but also the nobility in the, the early stretches of it. And I think that he could pull it off magnificently. So what about you guys?
0: So my biggest disappointment is isn't just because of what I was expecting because I knew the story, but because I gained expectation because of how everyone else was talking about what this movie could have been. My biggest disappointment is Dune. That's fair. I think it's well made, but that pace is a killer. It drags something fierce. And if I start to fall asleep in a movie theater, that's not a good sign. It's a really bad sign, actually. Everyone had been building this up as like, the next great big sci-fi epic, but I walked out of it going,
3: yeah, it was
1: well made. I walked out of it having gotten pretty much exactly what I expected because Danny Villeneuve directed it. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, yeah, I was like, yep, that was a Danny Villeneuve movie. And those same flaws are in all of his other movies, yeah, so. Yeah.
0: I guess I was just expecting more.
1: We had a conversation coming out of the theatre together. Who would we have liked to have seen direct that? And I think one of us suggested Peter Jackson. And ever since, I can't get out of my mind how awesome a (laughs) Peter (laughs) Jackson-Dune duology would have been.
0: Yeah. My favourite scene or sequence is from Malignant. It is the scene where the kidnapped person in the attic falls through the roof. (laughs) And then you just hear the Safari Riot, where is my mind, just blaring. Oh, it's so cool. Because in the cinema, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, oh, holy shit. No moment in the cinema last year got me that hype that I felt like standing up. Hmm. And who I, who would I replace with John Lethko, Um, from any role of this year? That's a toughie. But I would have to agree with Lawson. I would like to see him as Macbeth. I would like to see a Shakespeare adaptation in film from John Lithgow, ultimately. I think he'd just nail it.
3: Mm.
1: If I could pick one Shakespeare role I would like to see a movie starring John Lithgow tackle is King Lear.
0: Yes. Mm. Like, my favourite Lear right now is Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. But I think Lithgow just has that... He has a more gentle way about him than Anthony Hopkins does, which I think goes a long way to making Lear endearing. But, yeah, I would love to see... Would have loved to see John let Go in the role, even though Denzel Washington just crushes it. John, what about you?
2: Our biggest disappointment, probably Dune. Because I really enjoyed Blade Runner 2049, and it might have been because I was already tired. It might have been because, hmm, good, you were talking about it it's making me yawn. But it just, the moment that Timothy Chalamet and Rebecca Ferguson went out into the desert is when I started losing consciousness.
1: It's because Danny Villeneuve directed
2: it. Yeah. (laughs) It's
1: the same thing he does in every movie.
2: I love the music. I love the performances. It's just, it didn't resonate with me as much as I was hoping it would. For my favorite scene or sequence in a film, I think it's probably when Maud is climbing on the bottom of the plane in Shadow in the Cloud, Mm. and is hanging on and is firing the gun at the gremlin. I watched that scene again yesterday just to up myself to just take a hit of my love for that movie and the music there is a bop the way that it is filmed is brilliant and it's either that or the three Spider-Man because that you know touched me where i live that those are my spider man they're my boys and who i would get patron saint john lithgow to play from a movie this year Part of me, there's a little voice in the back of my head that is screaming,
3: Let him be Gabriel!
2: But that wouldn't make terribly much sense. Not that malignant makes sense. (laughs) But I think I would have had him as, actually, as Ross in Macbeth.
0: Yeah, I could see it.
2: As sort of this guy who's been around, he's got all of these machinations. I just love the idea of Lithgow playing this Machiavellian character, And I can see him doing that scene where he's like, Oh no, your kids, your wife and kids are fine. Turns, (laughs) oh shit, I have to tell him. Look, Macduff, I I told a lie. Actually, your wife and children are less alive than I would prefer.
0: I've actually changed my mind. Get him as
1: Ross, actually.
2: They are more dead than would be preferable. (laughs)
1: Well, we are going to do a vote this week, even though we don't have a movie to vote pro or anti for. But we are going to do a pro or anti vote as to whether this was a good year for movies. Twenty twenty one as a whole, twenty twenty one in film, are we pro, anti, or just apathetic? I'll start us off, and I will say that even though there are some some really good films this year, I'm going apathetic. I it's not it's it's a much improved from 2020 don't get me wrong but it doesn't fly to the heights of say 2015 or 2018 you know where there was just some really good strong movies out in so i am uh unfortunately despite having quite a few fun things thrown my way this year sky gremlins werewolves black and white shakespeare i've still got to say that i'm apathetic
0: for me i would have to say i'm pro this year it a lot of really strong showings. Mm. Um, A lot of stuff that... I, I say it's a strong year because I had trouble with the list, to be honest. Mm. There was a lot of stuff that could have ended up on there. I think we had a lot of really great stuff coming out. So, yeah, I'm pro 2021 in film.
1: Yes, let the record state that we did consider doing a pro or anti-vote on the years in general, but we realised that there are actually very few years where we would vote be pro for... Uh. It always seems to take a turn.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I am pro this year definitely in terms of movies. They have done such that they... because this year was so difficult to do the list and because I had to be particularly nitpicky about things shows how great a lot of these movies were. I think there's a lot of good cult movies this year and I think this year Is going to be very fascinating to see how it shapes up in comparison. We've gotten the Batman, we're getting the new Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, which...
0: And Cyrano counts.
2: And Cyrano counts as a 2022, and I'm excited to see that eventually. So...
1: There's nothing stopping you from going to a theater right now. I know. Say it with venom if it's someone else's fault, it's not.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This year, I think, was a good year for movies. Last year, sorry. Twenty twenty one was a good we've year been
1: stumbling o- we've been stumbling over that throughout the whole thing. You know, we are doing it in March, so give us a break.
0: Uh, so, yeah, so we are overall ambivalent on the state of cinema in the year
1: twenty twenty one. Now, of course, now that we've gotten this out of the way, we'll be moving back to our regular format next week with a single movie that we will be discussing. It's a movie that we're all uh, pretty interested in talking about. It's a movie that we have a lot of opinions to discuss. It is The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan uh, magician rivalry movie from 2006 starring Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. And if you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Binge, Foxtel Now and Stan as well as for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Apple, Amazon, and Fetch stores. However, it is only available in 4K on Stan, Apple, and Amazon.
0: So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at ExitDoTheCandyCounting. You can find John and myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What were your top 10 films of 2021? Um, Did you manage to get out to the cinema a decent amount? I know it was you know pretty nerve-wracking at the start of the year um, for a lot of people
1: yeah is there anyone out there who bested my record of 92 movies in cinemas? i
0: highly doubt that so yeah what were your favorite movies just tell us in on the twitter uh, you can also like comment and subscribe on your podcast app of choice just keep in mind that when you're commenting it's for the show on the whole not specific episodes but your mileage may vary depending on what service you use but please do like comment and subscribe award shows Still happen. The Oscars, sure. The Emmys, yeah. Grammys, not so much anymore. But that's for another day. There are also new award shows. Sometimes there are ballots held to determine the most excellent of the dioramas best set, best costuming, best lighting, and of course the coveted Best Performer Awards. The award is given to the performers most dedicated to their exhibits, to ones who go above and beyond what is already necessary. Last year, the winner was Steve Buscemi he won for his (laughs) heartbreaking depiction of a bystander witnessing the Hindenburg disaster (laughs) Uh, completely deserved I might add it really tugged at the heartstrings. you could see real tears the nominees haven't been revealed yet for this year but I'm hearing lots of good buzz about the diorama depicting the bear that joined the Polish army in World War 2 his name was Wojtek yes anywho I have been Harley Lewis
1: I have been Lawson Keeney
0: and I have been and I will continue be
3: sure, Lewis. Oh, here.